Romans 2. Going to go through the end of this chapter, Lord willing. Malachi 3, 2 Samuel 12, and Luke 18. Once again, the question I keep asking, how many of you have been with us in the book of Romans? Okay, so far, you can probably uh, gather this much. Paul, through chapters 1, 2, and the first part of 3, continues to throw people under the bus. He's throwing them under the bus, and along the side of the bus it says, God's righteous judgment. God is judging, and he's right to do it. Nobody's going to be able to look at, at God and go, I didn't know, it wasn't fair, you didn't... None of that. God is righteous, and Paul is proving it as he goes through this chapter. Paul has thrown under the bus of God's righteous judgment the atheist, the immoral. Chapter 2 begins, and he throws the moralist under the bus. The guy who's like, well, I don't really necessarily follow God, but I'm a good person under the bus. Last week, Paul even threw the guy on the island under the bus. That's hard to do, get a bus on an island, but he did it. (laughs) And now, probably the hardest one to convince of all, the religious person. Paul's going to address specifically in our text this morning, he's talking to the Jew, but you could easily, and we should, I think, trade out the word Jew for church member, uh, pew potato. You could easily trade out the word religious right. That is, the guy who's convinced because he's religious, he's right. That he's right with God. The guy who says, look, all the rest of those guys, chapters 1, 2, and up till this verse, all the rest of them, they deserve those tire treads on their back from God's righteous judgment. But not me, because I'm religious. I uphold the law. I follow these rituals. These guys are wrong. They deserve judgment. But not me. I'm religious, so I am right. In reality, the title of our message, he's a religious Rich. Same theme that we've been on, huh? Verse 17. Paul says to that person, he now turns his attention to that person, the religious person, says, indeed, you are called a Jew. In other words, you claim with pride your religious title. You're very proud to present yourself as a Jew. Now, today for us, maybe it would be Baptist or you're very proud to be of the Calvinist persuasion, or you're very proud to call yourself a Calvary Chapelite. So, Paul could be speaking to you, or me, today. You're, you're proud of being a Christian. That's not a bad thing. But maybe this is your the way you think of it. I'm not one of those wimpy, wussy Christians who won't admit it. I got a fish sticker right next to my tea party sticker. <laughs> got a fish sticker right next to my sign, my sign that says insured by Smith and Wesson. I got a, uh, a fish sticker right next to the one that says my kid and my money go to Florida. Two things that the religious wretch depends upon to justify himself. 
And, and they are these two things he's proud of. You ready? Look at verses 17 to 24. If you just get a cursory glance and you're going to see he's very proud of the fact that he knows the rules. The, the word is law, the law there. In our text this morning, the word law comes up ten times in those verses. So first it's the law but, or the rules. But number two, verses 25 to 29, Paul also talks about ritual. He says the religious wretch looks around at everybody else and goes, these guys aren't right with God, but I am because, number one, I know the rules and I play by them. And number two, I have these rituals that prove that I'm right with God. Well, Paul's going to destroy all of that. Okay? Here's an outline for you if you want it. The religious wretch, number one, is instructed in the rules. Number two, he's an instructor of the rules. Number three, though, this is where it starts to get sad for him. He's indicted by those same rules. We're going to see finally um, that the rituals that he uh, relies upon are invalidated. So he has an invalidated ritual. And then finally, the cure, the inward reality. The only cure is if there's an inward reality. Okay, number one, the religious wretch is instructed in the rules, in the law. Verse 17. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God. And you know his will and you approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law. If you are in Paul's target audience here, one of the things that you're proud of is that you know God's law. You are informed in his word. You are instructed in the rules. Verse 17. Indeed, you are called a Jew and you rest. The word rest means to rely upon. You rely upon the law and you make your boast in God. That is, you're proud of your standing with him. And it's based, what? On the law. Verse 18. And you know his will. The word will is thelema. What it means is you know what God wants and what he doesn't want. You know what God likes and what he doesn't like. Right? How do you know that? Because you know his law. You know the Bible. And you know his will and you approve the things that are excellent. That means you agree with God about issues perhaps of morality. In other words, yes, I know what God wants and I agree with him. That's why I hate all those sinners. I agree with God. You approve the things that are excellent. And then it says, and this kind of I think is a summary of these verses, being instructed out of the law. Perhaps more than any other boast of a God-fearing Jew or today a God-fearing religious person, they are proud of the law. The Jew would be proud of the law. Think about it. He was like, after all, if it wasn't for us, the whole world wouldn't even have the law. I mean, God chose the Jewish nation and he wrote on, with his own finger on tablets of stone, right? Any self-respecting Jew would have memorized big chunks of the Torah, of the Old Testament. And today, I think if there's one thing that evangelicals, and I, I hope you are, would say we're proud of, is this. Well, in Calvary chapels, we'd say what we're proud of is we know the Bible. Verse by verse, baby. 
No other way to study it. Verse by verse, we don't pick up and just pick and choose the Scriptures. We don't skip over anything, even the difficult stuff. Listen, it's really good to know the Bible, and it's good to go verse by verse. It's better than the alternative. But here's the thing. If you're not careful, you can begin to rest in your knowledge of the Scriptures. To think, yeah, I'm good with God. I know the Bible. To think that by knowing the Bible, somehow we have an in with God. That we're a little closer than the rest. The New Living Translation says, has the verse this way. If you are a Jew, you are relying on God's law for your special relationship with Him. You boast that all is well between yourself and God. Meaning, look, I got the Bible and I study it. That makes me good with God, right? Remember what Jesus said? John 5.39 to the Pharisees, who also really knew the law. He said, You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. But these are they which testify of, Hello, me. That's what Jesus says. The Scriptures that you hold in your hands, that you think are making you special with God, all of it points to me. And he says to the Pharisees, but you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. They, they were well versed in the, in the word, but they had no knowledge. They weren't willing to come to Jesus. So the religious person is, number one, instructed in the law. That is, he knows what God's will is and he agrees with God. Where it says again, approve the things that are excellent. That means the person that Paul is speaking to today... He knows what God's will is and he agrees with God. Let let me put it this way. The whole world, though the whole world approves of, it seems like, homosexuality, we approve the things that are excellent. Marriage between one man and one woman. Though the whole world approves of or at least uh, accepts adultery, we approve the things that are excellent. Fidelity. Though the world approves abortion, we abhor it. The world says there is no God. We say, no, he's coming back to judge the world. See, we agree with God. We know the rules. But not only is the the, the religious person instructed in the rules, but number two, he becomes an instructor of the rules. Verse 19. And, you religious man, you are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. Paul says to the religious wretch, you're so proud of yourself, aren't you? You look at the rest of the world and you say, sinners, if they only understood the Bible like we do. The law. He says, you say to them, come here, sinner. Let me take you under my wing. I will teach you all the rules to follow. You're so blind right now, but there's hope. I will be your guide. I will lead you out of the darkness. I will instruct you. You be the student. I'll be the schoolmaster. The idea is stick with me, kid. I'll teach you the rules. I'll show you the ropes. I will show you how to become a good religious person and and jesus said matthew 15 and luke 6 there's only one problem with that if the blind lead the blind where do they end up both in a ditch he says 
You'll travel the world to make a disciple of men after your own religion and make them worse off than they were in the beginning. Verse 21. Paul's going in the same direction that Jesus is going. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who are so versed in the, in the word, versed in the law, that you, you're a, a good instructor of it. Sure, you're instructed in the law and the rules. Good for you. You even instruct others. Good for you. And you impose those rules upon your students. But do you impose those rules upon yourself? Do you ask yourself, Paul says, the hard questions? Paul asks the Pharisee, the religious Jew, and us, for instance, verse 21, you who preach that a man should not steal. Do you steal? And probably most of us are like, well, I'm safe there. Of course not. I don't steal, comes the chorus from the religious right. But maybe some maybe even in this room, by way of creative accounting or reporting on your taxes, maybe you've figured out a way to steal just a little bit from the government. Who, yes, okay, steals from you. Or do you borrow and not return? I had to confess in the first service, I know I've done this just because of my scatterbrainedness. I'm serious. I, somebody uh, had something that they wanted to give me, and they, they listened to the message and said, how about if I put this somewhere where you won't lose it? Good idea. When you borrow and you don't return, that's stealing by layaway. <laughs> I do that. I don't mean to, but I do it. Uh, do you steal from your employer by leaving work early? or showing up late, or goofing off, or surfing the web when they're paying you to do something else. This one might sting a bit. Do you steal? Have you stolen by defaulting on a loan? You signed a piece of paper that said, that promised that you would pay this back, and then you didn't, or you couldn't. It may not have been intentional, just like my sin. But in effect, isn't that stealing? There's also an example, by the way, in the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 3. Turn there with me. See, there were some that were having this same conversation with God, that were trying to stand up in front of a holy God and say, we're right with you. There's no problem. What's your problem? God says, well, you've stolen, not just from anybody, you've stolen from me. They say, well, how did that happen? Well, verse 8, he says, Well, a man robbed God, yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it and I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes so that you will not destroy he will not destroy the fruit of your ground nor shall the vine fail to, to bear fruit for you in the field says the Lord of hosts and all nations will call you blessed for you will be a delightful land says the Lord of hosts If this is the first time you visited here you're like oh here it is the shakedown Nope we don't do that here 
We don't pass the, the plate. Um, not that that's wrong. It's plenty of good, God-fearing churches do that. We just don't happen to do it here. We're never going to lock the doors and say, okay, now for the seventh time, where's that money? Okay? Not going to do that. I don't know who gives. I don't know who gives one penny. This is not me making anyone feel guilty. I'm thankful for that. Here's the deal. If this just rang your bell, it's because God knows. Because He knows. And what Paul is doing is saying to each one of us, you say you do not steal. Do you steal? Back to our text, Romans chapter 2. See, Paul's saying over and over again, look, you point to the other guy and you impose these rules upon him, but do you ask yourselves the hard questions? Verse 22. You who say, do not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? Paul says, you're instructed in law, you know the rules, you're so well versed in them, you even teach others to obey them, but do you obey the same laws? And of course, the chorus shouts, of course we do, Paul, don't be ridiculous. We don't sleep with other men's wives. But Jesus said, even if you look at another man, another woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery with her already. It made me think... In our society, I honestly think you have to actively, aggressively guard your eyes so that you don't commit adultery by lunchtime. Um, maybe for you it's not that version. Maybe it's soap operas or certain romantic novels. Paul says, Hey you, in the religious right, do you commit adultery? And if that doesn't tweak you this morning, consider that in the Old Testament, God looked at Israel and he called them an, over and over again an adulterous nation. That was because they were following after other gods, any other god, like Mammon, that is the god of money, or Bacchus, the god of wine and good times, or Zeus, the god of war, or Nike, the god of sports. Shoot. No, really, it's victory, right? What is it that you have left your first love and gone after? Because Paul would say, hey, you who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Verse 22, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? See, a good Jew, of course, would detest, abhor that is, loudly proclaim their hatred for idolatry. It says, you who make such a show about hating idolatry, he says, do you rob temples? We're not sure exactly what he means here, but apparently a common practice was to either physically rob pagan temples at night to, to sell the plunder for your own personal gain, even though you didn't worship them. Right? Hey, there's a buck to be made. Or to somehow benefit financially from this practice. We know that uh, the, the muckety mucks in the, the Jewish nation, particularly in Israel, had a whole uh, cartel going on in the temple, right? See, here's what I think Paul's referring to in, in terms of today. He's talking about making a public show of your hatred for things, for certain things, and then in private, acting differently. In private, dabbling in or compromising with those things that when everyone else is looking, you detest, you abhor. It's called hypocrisy. 
And Paul puts a point on it now. Verse 23. You who make your boast in the law. In other words, you're so proud of knowing the law and your relation to it. You're, you're teaching the law to blind fools, to babes. You who make your boast in the law. Do you dishonor God through breaking the law? You, you, yes, you're instructed in the law. Yes, you instruct others. But do you not see that that same law indicts you? It convicts you. It says you are guilty. And he says you are dishonoring God. Verse 24. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. As it is written. Now there's a few places that Paul could be quoting. But I think one of, a great place to, to guess would be Second Samuel 12. Turn there with me. Second Samuel 12. Let me give you the, the uh, run up for it. Second Samuel 12. David. King David, religious man, right? Matter of fact, a guy that would put all of us, I think, to shame. The Bible says he was a man after God's own heart. And yet, when we come to this chapter, he has committed adultery with Bathsheba. She's gotten pregnant. To cover it up, he's added to his sin by ordering that her husband, Uriah, an honorable man, he goes to the front lines and he's killed. Okay? So, time passes now. 2 Samuel 12, in walks Nathan, a prophet, a friend of David's. And he weaves a tale, a judicial case that requires the expertise of David, one who's instructed in the law and an instructor of the law. He, he says, hey David, you're a guide to the blind. You're a teacher of babes. I got, a, I got something for you here. Give me your thoughts on this. 2 Samuel 12, 1. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one, of the way, one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Nathan says, look, I got a story for you. There's this guy who had hardly anything. And the one thing he had, he just loved. And he just, he just wanted to, to nourish it. And it was part of his family. But then there's this rich guy. Jerk. This rich guy has... All that you can imagine. And yet, when it came time to sacrifice, he sacrificed this guy's one and only precious possession. Look at verse 5. David knows the righteous law. He knows how this is supposed to go. David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. See, David's instructed in the rules. He's an instructor of the rules. And in righteous wrath, he stands up to impose the rules on this wicked man whose name he does not know. Turns out, the name is David. Verse 7. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man, thus says the Lord, God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. 
Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife. And you've killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Busted. Indicted by the rules that he wanted to impose. Don't turn back. Stay right here in Second Samuel. But if you were here last week, do you remember the last verse that we looked at? Romans chapter 2 verse 16 says, In the day when the secrets of men will be made known, will, that God will judge the, the secrets of men. Now look at verse 12. 2 Samuel verse 12 says, For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the Son. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. It was a good thing. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Forgiveness. But now watch verse 14. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. There's our um, crossover verse from our chapter in Romans chapter 2. You've given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also who is born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house. Back to our text. Paul says, look, you agree with God's rules You even teach others, but do you break them in secret? If so, you dishonor God. Verse 24, For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. Think about that from David's perspective. During that time, imagine the nations, the pagan nations surrounding Israel. How many of them had David come in and conquered? These guys are looking for a reason. To hate God. To hate David's God. And guess what? Now they have it. They can blaspheme the God of Israel at, at will. They could say things like this. Well, apparently David's God, the God of Israel, apparently he approves of adultery. Apparently he approves of murder. They could say, I'll tell you what. If he lets David get away with this, he does. He's fine with that stuff. That's why Nathan said, because you've created a position that they can blaspheme God, that's why your son must die. See, when you know the rules, and you proclaim the rules, and you proclaim them loudly, and yet you break the rules, even in secret, Paul says, you give unbelievers fodder so that they can push God further and further out of their lives. They can say, I knew it. Those Christians are all hypocrites. They're all phony. There's no power there. You call that born again behavior? See, the religious wretch is instructed in the rules. He becomes an instructor of the rules, but he's indicted by the rules. Now, quickly, let's look at an invalidated ritual. See, again, to remind you, two things. The religious wretch, the guy who's looking around going, I'm pretty good compared to these guys. Two things. That he relies upon. One is his relationship to the rules, to the law, to the Bible, to the word. But number two, the rituals that he has uh, submitted himself to. Okay, two things. One is rules, the next is ritual. Verse 25, for circumcision, that is a Jewish ritual, right? The removal of the male foreskin, it's signifying a cutting away of sin. Uh, You could call it God's brand 
on the Jews. It's something where they say, this is a sign and a signal that we belong to God. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law, but if you're a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. The religious Jew, the the righteous Jew relied on two things, his knowledge of the rules and this ritual, the outward mark, the identifying mark. Did you know that the tradition has it that they would say, that a Jew would say, look, I, I happen to know and I've heard through oral tradition that Abraham himself sits at the gate of Hades. And he, he waits. And if, if there's a, a Jew who's circumcised, walks toward him, walks toward hell, he says, hey, where, where are you going? You're circumcised. You're one of mine. You head right back up to heaven. You earned that. That's, that's the way they thought. Well, Paul says, um, I have some bad news for you. Circumcision is not a free pass to, for instance, commit adultery. Circumcision is not a free pass to steal or to kill or to uh, do anything that you want. Now, today, how does that play out? Well, today, Paul would say, uh, hello, baptism is not a free pass to steal all you want and go to heaven. Nor is confirmation or communion or making it through catechism or having a certain number of prayers that you say, all of those are rituals. Paul says, look, circumcision. And you can assert any ritual here, including the ones that we believe in, that is baptism. It's a good thing. Jesus commands us to do it. But you can insert that And Paul says this, that ritual only means something if it's an outward thing that signifies an inward reality. In this case, he says, look, if you want to keep the law, circumcision is only profitable if you keep the law. Let me me put it a different way. Rituals are outward signs and they're only profitable if they truthfully point to an inward change. Let me give you a ridiculous example. Since some of you are looking like you're asleep. Here we go. Let's say some of you say, hey, when was the last time we had a baptism? Let's have a baptism. I'm like, sure, that's awesome. Okay, great. We're going to have one a couple Sundays from now. And let's say uh, a guy comes up to me and goes, hey, I'm a murderer. And I want to get baptized. But could you make me first? Could you make me like right at about 1 o'clock? Because I have to go kill somebody at 145. Is his baptism count? Is it... There's no inward change. It's just an outward thing. This is probably the easiest way for me to help, help you understand. I've heard it said rituals like baptism, circumcision, all those things are like a label on a can. It's only profitable if the label, the outward label, matches the inward reality. Let me give you an example. You grab a can that says peaches on the label. You open it up, inside it's beets. That's not profitable. Okay, it's profitable for the beet maker, but not for you. Paul says, look, your circumcision is only profitable if it matches the inward reality. Matter of fact, if you're allergic to the thing that's on the inside of the can, that can be deadly. And the theme that I haven't even touched on... 
that goes through here is Paul is also saying, look, you're an instructor of babes. You're, you're teaching people things that are leading them to destruction because you have the outward sign, but there's nothing inside that's real. Paul says your circumcision is only profitable if it matches an inward reality. And then he flips the thinking. He says, takes the same logic, but from the other side. Verse 26. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? The rhetorical question, and the answer is yes. What he's saying is, look, the same way that a murderer who says, hey, I want to be baptized and think that it's a, uh, you know, going to get me into heaven, the same way that that's ridiculous, says, consider this. What if a man is righteous, if he could keep the law, don't you think that God would look on his inward reality and say, yes, I approve of that, and I don't approve of this man who has the outward sign, but inside he's, he's death. A murderer circumcised um, who continues to murder versus a righteous man who's uncircumcised. Which one's going to go to heaven? Which one's going to please God, I should say? Paul is speaking of the religious wretches invalidated ritual. And now he really begins. Imagine you're, you're one of these guys, a religious wretch. You're a Jew in particular. And you've, you've put your faith and your hope in these things, the law, the rules, the ritual. Imagine how mad you'd be at this next sentence, verse 27. And will not the physically uncircumcised, that is the Gentiles that you despise, will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills a law, judge you? Who, even with your written code, that is your rules, and your circumcision, that is your rituals, are a transgressor of the laws. You've already admitted in your head, God knows your secrets, that you are a transgressor of the law. Wouldn't it be right that the uncircumcised would be your judge as opposed to the other way around, which you have convinced yourself? See what Paul's done here? It's, it's the same song over and over again. He's taken the two legs now that the religious man stands on, rules and rituals, and he's cut them down from underneath. He says, look, the rules, unless you keep them perfectly, and by the way, God knows the secrets of men. The rules don't excuse you. No, they indict you. And he says, you know what that does to your ritual? That just makes your ritual a shell, a sham, something fake. It doesn't match reality. The two legs of the religious man was standing on are now cut down. So what has happened? The righteous judgment of God, the bus rolls on. It mows down the religious right, the religious wretch. Now, once again, come to the same question. This is how we've ended every single message. What hope is there? Again, how many of you have been coming for the last three or four weeks? You've been coming for four weeks now, and God keeps saying to you rude things like this. You are not good enough. You're not even close. You're not getting into my heaven like that. Imagine if God lets me, a man who steals, into his heaven. I've ruined it. My presence has ruined a perfectly good neighborhood for you guys. 
He says over and over again, you're not good enough. You're not getting into my heaven. And we cry out, right? By the time we get to the end of this, we're like, God, what do you want from me? God says, surrender. I want you to surrender to me. I want you to admit you need a Savior. And I want you to let me redeem you from the inside out. I want to change you from the inside out. Jesus talked about... The, to the Pharisees, these same guys, these religious right, the, 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 the wretches who think that they've got it together, says you're so concerned about washing the outside of the cup. Why not wash the inside of the cup, the part that you eat out of? Jesus says, if you'll come to me, if you'll surrender, I can wash you from the inside out. That's why he said to Nicodemus, the one of the most religiously righteous person that, that that area knew, that guy came to him by night and Jesus said to him, uh, you need to be, well, just born again. <laughs> it's not good enough for you to just make yourself look better to clean up the outside. You need pretty much to be born again. You need a complete do-over. The religious Wretch is instructed in the rules. He becomes an instructor of the rules. He's indicted by those same rules. Even his ritual is invalidated by his lifestyle. The only hope for him is an inward reality change. Verse 28. For he is not a Jew. Now remember that word Jew is actually the shortened version of the word Judah. And you know what Judah means? Praise. You're going to want to know that. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly. That means so that everyone can see. Nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. The word is cryptos. It's concealed secret. Tie that into verse 16. God knows the secrets of men. But he's a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, the inner part. That is in the spirit, not in the letter. These guys were, were over and over again trying to fulfill the letter of the law. Jesus says, you guys will tithe. When it comes to tithing, you will take your, the smallest mints, like the smallest um, spices. You go, okay, one, one for God, nine for me. One for God, nine for me. You will go to that degree to fulfill the letter of the law, the outside of the law. He says, but you, you miss the, the bigger things that God is doing. But he is a Jew who is one uh, inwardly, and circumcision is that in the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Praise. The name Judah. You see what Paul's doing? Play on words here. He's saying, the, the, the Jew who says, yeah, I, I have praise. I mean, compared to all, these, these, all the rest of these guys should be praising me for my faithfulness, my, my loyalty, all of those things. And Paul says, hello, what matters is what God says about you. Do you have his praise? The true Jew in that sense is one who has praise from God. When you die, it won't matter what all the other church members, what everyone else in this room said about you. Doesn't matter what the pew potatoes said about you. Everyone could praise you because of your great knowledge of the Bible and your strict adherence to rituals. What will matter is what God says about you. And he knows your heart. 
He knows what you did last week. He knows what you did this week. He knows what you've done all your life. He knows every secret thing, according to verse 16. Now again, we cry out, God, what do you want from me? He says, surrender. Turn with me to Luke 18 as we close. Romans 2. I want to end it here in Luke 16. Jesus telling a story about the religious wretch and the sinner wretch. Ready? Luke 18, verse 9. Also, Jesus spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Everybody say, boo, his tax collector. Boo. See, it's easy for you, isn't it? Right, even today, people don't love tax collectors. Okay, These guys were the scum of the earth, according to men. But watch, the tax collector will end up with the praise of God, God in the flesh, Jesus Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with, notice, himself. Says, God, glad that I got you here. God, I thank you I am not like other men. Notice who he's comparing himself to. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or, oh, it's nice of you to bring this lousy tax collector here so I compare myself to him too. Let's see, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. God, aren't you lucky to have me? Now watch. And the text collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That word never crossed the lips of the Pharisee, the guy who thought that he was righteous. Verse 14, Jesus God with skin on says, I tell you this. This man went down to his house, that is the tax collector, went down to his house justified. What's the the theme of Romans? How to be justified, to be right with a holy God. This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Once again, I know it's it's the same refrain, but I guess you guys are, are... Dense. God wants you to hear it over and over again. Jesus says, look, I love you. And there is no way you're getting into heaven the way you are. There's only one way to be justified with the Holy God, and that is to cry out, I'm a sinner who needs a Savior. Paul is doing us a huge favor by taking us out of the category of the the Pharisee who prays amongst himself and praise in comparison to others, he's doing us a tremendous favor by taking us out of that category and putting us in with a lowly tax collector who says, I need a Savior. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you.